question. Do you know what it's like to be in a race that's really long and grueling? You just kind of want it to be over uh, at a certain point, and yet you still want to win. <laughs> You've been in that situation. That was me about 12 years ago. I was in a half Ironman race. I wasn't doing the whole thing though, I was just in the relay category, which is a fun category. You just do one part and you're part of a team, which is really, uh, it's a fun way to do it. And so actually I was in it with uh, Anna's brother. He's a, he was a state swimmer, so he did the swim. His friend was a really good runner, a half a marathon distance runner. And then I had the bike. And uh, <laughs> I, the easier part, yeah, you got mechanical advantage and... Uh, problem was is I, I didn't train really well <laughs> for this 70 mile. It ended up becoming like an extra 12 miles than I anticipated the ride was going to be. And I didn't bring enough to, to ride the race. I remember looking at this other guy's bike. He had all these packets of stuff, like 10 of them, and I had like two. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, I'm in trouble. Uh, and I was. I got into real trouble about I don't know, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way into the ride, I hit the wall. I just felt terrible, like I had nothing left. But I didn't stop. I didn't rest. I kept pushing it. I felt sick. But I kept imagining that, that finish line, that resting place beyond, and I wanted our team to win. I wanted us to win, at least this category. Well, I didn't by any means get us in the lead with, with my efforts. What happened was I hand, when I handed it off to the guy who was running, I, it ended up being he was like the best half marathoner, distance runner in the county. And so he takes it, it's the last leg, and so he starts passing people, left, right, and center. And he starts getting so bored, he starts counting how many people he's passing. <laughs> and he ends up counting over 600 people <laughs> in the run. And of course, what that does for us in the relay category, it secures us the win. We won that, that category. And uh, I remember getting the win. I thought we were going to get some big prize, and, and all we got was like some cheap bottle of wine. <laughs> that was kind of a strange prize for a, a half marathon, a half Ironman. So what does this have to do with, with Advent <laughs> or with our scripture this morning? Well, if that's your question, I've got some answers. Our psalm, Psalm 132, it tells us about... David's, this desire, this thing he's, he's going for, he's got this goal, this destination, this resting place that he's after. And it ends up being the holiest resting place we can imagine. It starts uh, like this. If you have your bullets in inside, there's a little leaflet that actually has the psalm in it. And it starts like this. O oh Lord, remember in David's favor. Remember, in a sense, David's race. All that he endured, this grueling, long uh, time he had of trying to find a resting place. All the, all the vows he made, all that he suffered and endured and vowed not to rest until he found a resting place, but not for himself. For Yahweh, the Lord, for the mighty one of Jacob, to find God Almighty a dwelling place 
where he could rule from and bless his people from to find him a resting place. So that's the, uh, the title of the, the sermon really is A Prayer and a Promise for a Resting Place for God. And that's how the psalm works. That's the psalm in a nutshell. So on the left side, you have the prayer for this resting place, relating to this resting place. On the right side is the responsive promise of God to that prayer concerning the resting place. So prayer and a promise for a resting place for God. That first half, the verses 1 to 10, it recounts this time when David, we read about it in the Old Testament reading, when it was his task to find a place, a resting place. He wasn't going to build the temple, that was going to be Solomon, but he was going to find the place. So it's about him working, vowing to, to not rest until he finds his place, until he finally brings God's ark into Jerusalem, into Zion, which ends up being God's choice as well. It's a beautiful thing where God, David's desire and God's desire meet in Jerusalem, in Zion. And the desire of the prayer is to be there. You hear this, let us go to this dwelling place, to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, the footstool being either the temple or the, the ark. Because one moment in the presence of God it is worth a lifetime of waiting when we really encounter the living God in his presence. So that's the prayer to be there. They want to go because God's presence is, is there. They want to meet God there. But they're also interestingly praying for God to rise up and go there himself. So he's, he's saying, well, rise up, O Lord, and go to your resting place. So it's, if it's his dwelling place, his resting place, he must be, be, be there to some extent already. And yet here's a prayer for God to go there and be there in a fuller and fresher way than they're used to, that they can notice and feel and receive. They want to meet God there. And so if you're going to go to such a meeting, you've got to be dressed for the occasion. So they pray, let your priest be clothed with righteousness. And let your faithful shout for joy. So if, maybe you recognize that from the daily office. Clothe your ministers with righteousness is what we pray. And let your people sing with... Okay, only a few of us read the daily, or pray the daily office, that's all right. <laughs> so Lord, yes, Lord, remember David. Remember all that he did. Remember all that he went, his, his desire for this resting place of yours. And rise up and go there yourself and let's meet there. That we could worship you and we could be blessed by you. So that's the first half. That's the left side of your leaflet. On the right side is the response of promise God gives. And this promise does address the place. But it also includes a promise about a person. These two go together. For a son of David, a Messiah. The Lord, he, it says, swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I'm going to set on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion, Jerusalem, desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever, he declares. Here I'm going to reside, for I have desired it. 
And I'm going to abundantly bless its provisions. This is a place of abundant, abundance, abundant provision. I'm going to satisfy the poor with bread here. Its ministers, here's a response to the prayer, are going to be clothed with salvation. Its saints with joy. There, in this place, I will cause also a horn, a mighty horn of David to spring up. And I have prepared a light, a lamp for my anointed to shine over him. His enemies I'm going to clothe with shame, but upon him, his crown shall shine. That ends the psalm. So again, a prayer and a promise for a resting place for God. But as we also see, it's also a resting place for God and his Messiah and his people. And in the New Testament, we learn about that dwelling place, that all the fullness of deity was going to dwell now bodily in the Messiah. So that brings us to the icon on your bulletin. It's on your leaflet, and it may be on the screen as well. This icon and the, the Malcolm Geit poem, there's just so many wonderful connections here. And it's almost like they got together and talked to each other. But also more wonderfully, they both have amazing, beautiful ways of illustrating, telling us, showing us how Psalm 132 is now fulfilled in Christ. How we can think about this psalm, pray this psalm, hope with this psalm. So the leaflet, if you have it, you could actually open it up and you can have the icon on one side and the, the poem on the other, or you can save that for later and just look at the screen. If you look at icons, you notice icons, you'll notice that they're not like obsessed with historical accuracy with details. They're not trying to make up historical events, but what they're trying to do is show us the significance and the meaning of the historical event, which is what I think good art should do. And you'll notice the symbolism, it transcends time. So there's different time frames here in the, in the icon, which, which happens a lot. So you have the time of when the angels were showing up to the shepherds. Then you have the time when the shepherd actually arrived at the manger. Then you have a time later when the magi come to the manger. You have a time later when Christ in the bottom right corner, he's being bathed. Different time frames. This is about a way of capturing a whole season in the life of Christ. And notice that star. I love the star above it. I, I wonder perhaps, is that the light, the lamp from Psalm 132? Prepared for his anointed, now shining over and onto Christ, who is also God's chosen dwelling place. The one in whom all the fullness of deity now dwells in bodily form. There is God's chosen dwelling place fulfilled. So Jesus, he fulfills both the person and the place of Psalm 132. And then I love how Malcolm Geit says all of this, his prayer, his poem. The perfect love that casts out every fear came down with the Christ, the true anointed one. 
I love, uh, that, that's just something you could think about all of Eastertide. But when we think about praying, we don't pray, now remember God, David, and all his efforts and all he suffered and endured. Now we pray, God, remember his son. Remember him and all he suffered. Remember his finished work as we pray for this dwelling place. Whose coming David saw when Yahweh swore one of his line, David's son would sit upon his throne and wear his crown. And this is where I think of that half marathon runner, but even more so when, when Jesus is on your team, or rather when you're on his team, no matter what race is going on, you're going to win. You're going to win. But David died before the deed was done, long before the deed was done, nor did he know that the promised crown would be a crown of thorns. He would endure a lot more, much more than David did to fulfill this psalm, more than anyone. The resting place would be the sepulcher. That's a structure, it's a a chamber for a burial. So in the icon, notice Jesus, he's not in a barn, which is the typical scene, of course, in our nativity scenes, the least likely place he was in. He's not in a house where the animals stay. That was a likely place at this time where Jesus could have stayed in the manger. But he's in a cave, which was also a common place to shelter animals at this time. And actually, the earliest testimony we have outside of the Bible says he was born in a manger that was in a cave. Caves, of course, were also used for tombs. So we're meant to think here not just of the place where Jesus was born, but what was coming, his coming tomb, his coming womb, in a sense, of his second birth when he rose from the dead. In line with this, also notice the manger that Jesus is in. What does it look like? It's like a coffin, doesn't it? And look at his... His, his swaddling clothes, they kind of look also like grave clothes, pointing to his coming death. So a few weeks ago, I, I talked about in your nativity scenes, to keep them from being overly sentimental, make sure to include a dragon. And now you also need to make sure you include a coffin. David didn't see what we see, that God's resting place would be at least for a time, a tomb. God would come down and earth would meet with heaven face to face. That's what you see in this icon, right? You see the the heavenly angels and then you see the muddy animals, earthly animals. You see the faraway wise magi and you see the close and simple shepherd. You see the axe and the ox. You see the, the clean and the unclean, those on the inside, those on the outside, coming together, meeting around, face-to-face with this place, this dwelling place, this resting place, this person through whom all things were made, in whom all things hold together, through whom all things will be reconciled in heaven and on earth, now in flesh appearing. That's what we're seeing in this icon. And when in Christ satisfied the poor with bread, 
which is a line straight out from Psalm 132. That bread would be his body. Christ was born in a manger. We talked about this last year, like we did with the cave. Manger uh, comes from the French word manger, to eat. So here Jesus is being offered us as the one who nourishes us most of all, of all things. And so this time when we do communion, like I did last year, I'm going to say to you, prenez manger when I give you Christ. Take, eat, the nourishment of God. In our place, he would face death and suffer in our stead to set us right. So God chooses here to dwell in the deepest, darkest place among us. That's where he is in this icon and in reality. And he comes there to save us from every enemy and even to feed us from that very place. And now, of course, we know the crown of thorns is bright with blossom round his sacred head. Who says to us already, even now, I am with you now to the end of the age. Our series has been titled, Waiting for What We Already Have. So Christ has already come down in the flesh. Christ is already, even though he's at the right hand of the Father, he is also already with us in the Spirit, present hidden, veiled many times, like in the cave. And yet we still say, rise up, Lord, and come. Come in a fresh, in a fuller way than we've felt or noticed before. Come, we need you. We wait for that, we ask for that. I want to bring your attention to one last character in the icon, and that would be Joseph. He's a... He's in the bottom right corner. And it's hard to maybe tell, but he's being harassed by someone. It's either someone who's been sent by the devil or the devil himself. And he's being tempted to doubt all this or been tempted to be distracted from the one at the center. And I think he, he represents a lot of us, all of us at times, especially us who are living in this secular age. And we wonder sometimes, is this all true? Is this Jesus truly at the center of it all? Or sometimes we know it's true, we believe it's true, but we've just been distracted from this. Our attention is somewhere else, and we're all huddled in a corner, worried, filled with anxiety and despair. I was in... Uh, spiritual direction session the other day and I was talking to my director about all the car troubles we've had over the last several months. It's been crazy. Uh, engine problems, door handle problems, door handles coming right off, mirrors coming right off, cars taking off our side mirror, tire problems, tons of tire problems, tires that needed to be replaced, two flat tires, totally flat tires. My bike had two flat tires. I never get flat tires. Well, needless to say, it's left me at times, not just in this realm, but in other realms, just feeling literally and metaphorically deflated. And so I've wanted to do things, and I just felt like I, 
I just can't move like I need to. Like you're in one of those dreams and you're trying to run and you're in slow motion and you're just not going where you want to go. I felt that a bunch of times. Well, I shared this with my spiritual director and we happened to be talking about this icon and he's like, Dave, I think, I think you're at times like uh, Joseph there in the corner. And he said, imagine you're, you know, you're, you got one of those flat tires, imagine that scene and... Uh, and you're there, you're at the side of the road, you're sitting on the curb, um, feeling deflated in whatever way, for whatever reason. Where's Jesus in the scene? Where do you see him? And I was like, you know, I have to be honest, at times, I don't see him in the scene. I'm not, I'm not seeing him. Uh, I'm distracted with something harassing me. And that was really helpful. That was really helpful to redeem my imagination and reorient the vision of my soul, of my life. Because we can become like a Joseph, distracted from the one who, who's sitting with us actually on the curb, the one who's actually with us. He's with us in the deepest, darkest place amongst us. He's there with us. He is the one who has already come. He is the one who continues to come in new and fresh ways. And he is the one who will come fully and finally in his resurrected body when God finishes his resting place. And so we pray the New Testament version of Psalm 132. The prayer, come Lord Jesus, come. And the promise, surely he is coming soon. May it be so. Yeah.